Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. I am your host, Josh Korngut. I am the managing editor of Dread Central. I am also a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Usually on this podcast, we tackle topics of films that have been trapped in the development hell cycle, but for the next four episodes, we're going to be doing something a little bit differently. Stay tuned and find out more about Cheapers Creepers, Unseen, in just a moment. Jeepers Creepers is an iconic horror franchise spawning 20 years, four films, and a passionate fan base. But this community has become increasingly divided as public awareness surrounding its creator's disturbing crime continues to rise. This new true crime podcast, Jeepers Creepers Unseen, aims to unearth this controversial franchise by reviving its past contextualizing the harm perpetrated by its creator, and by also taking an honest look at why this property is important to so many horror fans. With a fourth movie now out from new filmmakers, Jeepers Creepers Unseen aims to ask if this well-loved film series can reckon with history and thrive, or is now the time to move on? We're looking for these answers and more on the all-new four-part limited audio series, Jeepers Creepers Unseen. Episode 2, The Jeepers Creepers Franchise. On today's second episode of the Jeepers Creepers Unseen Limited series, we're going to take a critical look at the original three films of the franchise. These are the films written and directed by series creator Victor Salva. And over the course of two decades, we're going to see how the accountability of his actions slowly overwhelmed his ability to create. With me, I am joined by Jules Bruin. Jules is a trauma-informed counselor who specializes in addictions and mental health. She's going to help us look at these three films with a critical eye. We're not going to be discussing the fourth film of the franchise, as we're going to dig into that one on episode four. Jules, how's it going? 
Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy you're here. Can you do me a favor and reintroduce yourself to the Dread Central audience? Yeah, so I'm Jules or Juliana Bruin, and I'm a good friend of Josh's, full disclosure. But yeah, I'm a, a counselor out of Toronto, Canada. I specialize in addictions and mental health from a trauma-informed lens, which means I see everything through the lens of, of, of past trauma and how trauma impacts our day-to-day lives. What do you do sort of on a day-to-day basis? What does your average workday kind of look like? I have two jobs, kind of. My full-time job is working with women and gender queer folks that are involved with the criminal justice system. So either have had charges laid against them, are, are at risk of sort of having charges laid against them, that kind of thing. And then in the evening, I have a private practice that I opened up about a year ago. So we're working with a diverse kind of people with whatever kind of is going on for them, whatever's coming up for them day to day. Why is this the field that you sort of found yourself drawn to? Honestly, I always knew I'd want to do something in the helping field. And (laughs) when I was 16, I was lucky enough to get a placement at a psychiatric ward of a hospital. So I worked on the psychiatric ward for about seven years and got to really understand mental health and what that looked like from the medical model. I can't say I particularly love the medical model, but I understand its place in our world. Um, And I really just fell in love with folks that had mental illness. And I really realized sort of systemically how we were really not serving them and, and how as a society, we failed them. And so I just really wanted to do as much as I could to be an ally, an advocate, and like a support person for folks that had mental health and substance use problems. I know you're not necessarily a huge horror movie fan. No. And I'm wondering, (laughs) based on your profession, do you find yourself when you watch horror films, taking a look at them from a victim-informed lens or from, from a more social work angle? Like, is this a way that you find yourself viewing movies? Definitely. I think it kind of ruins horror movies for me a little bit because <laughs> I can't help but do that. So there's a lot of horror movies that I just can't watch because it just is too, I'm just like watching people get like, you know, traumatized, literally tortured, abused, and it's just too real for me. Um, you know, talking to folks day to day about the trauma, that, that kind of trauma that impacts them. I can't watch it happen on the screen. Um, mm-hmm. I think we've also had arguments where I, I'm like really literally taking the text of different horror movies and you're like, it's a movie, like it's magical, mm-hmm. like, you know what I mean? And I'm, I'm really seeing it from this really critical social work lens, like, oh, they're insinuating trauma there. They're insinuating like sexual abuse there. And I, I'm really like looking for that. So I think it's, it's constant. I can't, I kind of can't get away from it. And I think it kind of does mm-hmm. ruin me as a horror fan well definitely it gives you a unique perspective and i'm very excited to have you here today that's generous of you thank you (laughs) (laughs) so i made you watch the first three films in the jupers creepers franchise what was your initial relationship with have you seen these movies before these watches so I thought I'd only seen the first, but it turns out I've only seen the second in the past. And I did see the second in theaters when I was mm-hmm. in grade six or seven, uh, when it was out in theaters. I remember loving it at the time, um, mm-hmm. but then I never went back to it just because, again, like horror isn't exactly my thing. And usually when I watch horror, it's because you, Josh, forced me to watch a movie. Uh, so you just hadn't <laughs> forced me to watch these until now yeah I I remember liking it and I I actually never knew of the allegations until you told me about them that you were going to do this podcast I I do find a lot of not just horror fans but you know people that watch these movies don't know about 
the context. So that's kind of why we're here. So if it's okay with you, Jules, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start us off with a little bit of historical context for when the first film came out. And then we're going to take a dig into each of the films one by one. 2001 is the year that the first Jeepers Creepers film came into theaters. And in my opinion, the year 2001 was a transitional year for horror films. We were seeing a hard pivot and sort of this long death of the slasher film in moving towards what I think is more of like a fun, violent, and supernatural era in horror. Some examples is we were seeing the swan song of the slasher genre with movies like Valentine and Jason X. But this is also the time where we're seeing the rise of thoughtful horror releases like Frailty, The Others, a movie I know you like, and Session Session 9. Um, Just a couple years before, in 1999, saw the launch of Dark Castle Entertainment with the release of House on Haunted Hill, which you've seen, right? It's great. So good. Yeah, it's, it's very good. So this movie came out between the releases of, I believe, Scream 2 and Scream 3. It was followed by 13 Ghosts, which was sort of a similar supernatural, gory tone. And also this, love Yeah, they're both amazing films. I'm also a really big fan But this sort of mini era of horror was a bridge between the slasher era and the era of remakes, which began, I guess, in 2002, but really started to take or snowball in the later 2000s. So after Scary Movie, the parody, which made audiences sort of unable to take slasher films seriously in the same way that they once did, well, we got the second film. Scary Movie 2, which came out in 2001, and that took a hard pivot to spoofing ghost movies and supernatural thrillers. So I think that, like, watching what Scary Movie was paying attention to with, in the year 2000, they were focused on Scream, and I know it did last summer. By the second one, they're starting to spoof movies like this. So just before the remake craze really took hold with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 2003 and House of Wax in 2005, we have this movie, Jeepers Creepers, which is part slasher film, part supernatural horror film, very fun in tone, but at the same time, relentless, really scary and gross. So it was kind of like, in my opinion, a bridge between the slasher era and, well, the remake era, which led us to 2001 when Jeepers Creepers came out. Jules, would it be okay with you if I just gave everyone a bit of a refresher on the context of the first film? Yeah. Can I just also interject that I didn't realize this time of movies, I liked so many of these movies. Again, (laughs) as not a horror fan, like, I guess this was like a, I really liked this, this Mm -hmm. transitional period for some reason. Anyways, sorry. Well, I think it also has something to do with our age group, right? This was around the time you and I were 12, 13. These movies unofficially were really marketed towards us. That makes so much sense. Yeah, totally. Oh, I fell hook, line, and sinker. Anyways, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, there's just nothing best. There's nothing better than Dark Castle films, as oh, you and yeah. I sort of agree on. Yeah. And I, it's sort of my dream to one day host a miniseries about Dark Castle films and call it Dark Castle Cast. So Love if you it. want to hear that, let us know on Twitter. So the first film in the Jeepers Creepers franchise was released on August 31st, 2001. They made it for about 10 million bucks, and it was created by filmmaker Victor Salva, who we've continued to talk about. The film itself uh, garnered about 60 million worldwide, making it a mm. modest hit 
for the horror genre. The film stars Gina Phillips and Justin Long as siblings. And we also have the performance of The Creeper by Jonathan Breck. And Jonathan Breck would continue to play this role for the second and third films. If I had to like turn to you, Jules, and someone asked you, what is the first Jeepers Creepers film about? How would you answer that? Thinking from like a very plain, simple lens, I would just say, you know, like siblings on a road trip get killed (laughs) by a creeper. From my social worker lens, it seemed much deeper for me. I begrudgingly really loved it. Um, Mm -hmm. I thought it was quite, quite beautiful in a lot of ways. And I think it actually brought up a lot of themes around abuse and emotion and lots of stuff that I think were like quite subtextual, but quite... Uh, clear for me anyway yeah definitely present you know we were saying that this is a film about two siblings and you're right they're Mm -hmm. on a road trip and they encounter some pretty severe violence at the hand of this new cinema monster kind of Mm -hmm. an icon at this point the creeper uh jules who is the creeper what is the deal with this monster in this film how is he unique honestly i think what's unique about him is that is is first like really not seeing him which i mean they've done before in like friday the 13th and halloween's and stuff where you don't sort of fully you see well i guess but with the creeper you 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 see him but you don't see his face he's like covered with the hat and the coat so it's quite mysterious because you're like is he magical Hmm. is he not magical like you don't really know until the end that he is this full magical creature um, yeah. So at first it just feels like kind of a regular old serial killer and then it kind of keeps evolving and unfolding and that's how it gets scarier and scarier. It's like the build kind of really, it really pays yes. off and you're, it's really frightening by the end. Yeah. So we learn a little bit more about this murderous sort of human hungry creature as the film continues. But something I resonate with and sort of, I don't know, I always like in horror is the archetype of the boogeyman. It's oh, something yeah. that I always kind of find myself drawn to from Freddy Krueger to, as we talk about sometimes, that character in Buffy to Kinderstad. There's so many different... Uh, the, the Babadook, I guess, is a modern iteration of, of the boogeyman. And they're always sort of a mysterious figure. You don't see their face. And often they will be dressed with like a hat and a coat, sometimes formal, sometimes not. The Crooked Man, another yeah. example of what the boogeyman sometimes appears like. Yeah, um, and I think the boogeyman is mm-hmm. kind of also st- stems from that sort of the night terrors that people have, or, or sorry, the, the sleep paralysis yes, demons that people yes. see. And one of them is the man in the hat, right? And so I really mm-hmm. think that sort of, I, I felt that very strongly in this movie as well, that sort of man in the hat, horrifying, yeah. dream-like person. Why do you think... If you had to guess why people experiencing sleep trauma or sleep paralysis tend to have a vision of that archetype, what is about it that that you think maybe could connect the dots? It makes me think of, and this is just totally my random thought of like um, doctors and things like that. Whereas in the, in the past mm-hmm. and still in the present, they can be quite traumatic figures uh they have mm-hmm. a lot of power they're typically men they can do quite horrible things to us they have done horrible things to us in the past there's this really sense of like vulnerability with them and unknowing and think about things like the plague doctors and all these other and the ways that they looked and i think that sort of there's a similarity to that in in this like man in the hat boogeyman um aesthetic yeah and We haven't really touched base on it yet, but in this podcast, we've gone over quite a bit 
about the crimes committed by director-writer Victor Salva towards a child that starred in his first film, Clown House. The child's name is Nathan Forrest Winters. So we're taking a look at the Jeepers Creepers films through the lens of knowing that this is someone who has perpetrated some pretty terrible crimes and looking around to see if there's any context or, or clues to sort of see if we can connect the dots a little bit. Do you have any initial thoughts on the subject? Knowing about the horrific crimes that, that were committed against this this child by Victor Salva, it, it was hard not to notice the moments of inappropriate, the, which which I think, ha- you know, there's a lot of gratuity, sexual gratuity in horror movies as it is, but to kind of go in with the context of this man is a predator, it was hard to sort of to make it maybe have a blind eye around some mm-hmm. of the sort of glaring things that, that were going yeah. on in these films. Well, yeah. is there anything that stood out to you as, like as especially I, concerning? Yeah, for First and foremost, just even the way the, the leads that he ch- chooses in all the films, not to ton of jump around, are quite young looking boys that are are supposed to be playing like young teens, I believe, like maybe like mm-hmm. 16. Um, and, you know, the amount of toplessness, the amount of, you know, just sort of they are just sweating and naked. And, and I mean, me and you spoke about this, the peeing. Every single one of his movies, there is like a, a full scene of men, of young men peeing, and it, it's quite long, these scenes, and you know, in, in the second one, they're shivering from their feet, like it just feels so gratuitous, it feels yeah, it so does. feels inappropriate, it feels, it, like, doesn't make the plot go any further, <laughs> like, no. that he chose to make that a through line through all of his films is a very, like, I, I definitely have like a big question mark on that. Yeah, there's definitely a steely male gaze directed firmly at the young men in these films. And I, yeah, a big part of it that really stood out to me was this, my perception of the fetishization of peeing, like this water sports fetish kind of, because you see it really uh, present in each of the films. Like you see the urine, you see the response to the urination. It's like very sexualized. Yeah, and not to like jump too much to the second film, but you know, there's a part in the really long peeing scene where they're all peeing out on this field. You see the creeper flying over them, and it feels very much like you know somebody peeping on people in the bathroom. Like it felt so mm-hmm. predatory, like of this this creeper watching them pee, and it felt oh, it just gave me such a ick. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that sort of struck me as situationally icky was well to give a little bit of context in the film the creeper gets your scent and if he gets your scent he's going to decide if he's going to eat you and if he does he's going to decide which part of you he's going to devour and once he decides like there's no escape he's going to get you and he's going to eat that part of you and a big part of that is his ability to catch somebody's scent and there's a lot of like uh pretty direct like sniffing sniffing of boys sniffing of underwear and it just struck me as fetish fetishistic would you agree absolutely i mean in the first one he you know the 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 underwear that he's sniffing of justin longs are like tidy whities which you think of as more of a younger um underwear Mm -hmm. and in the underwear justin long's character's name is written on them which is also feels very young right so the creeper smells these underwear and then justin long's like oh my god now he knows my name it felt so bizarre and again like like he had to point out that he smelled his underwear point out that his name was written on the underwear it felt so like it felt like it was an homage to like of course he's smelling like young boys underwear you know and yeah just, and of ooh. course this is all just 
conjecture. Like this sure, is just course, things that we're noticing. But it's hard yes. it's hard not to notice stuff like this, you know, after viewing these films aware of the crime committed by by Salva. Mm-hmm. And and I just also want to talk about that that smelling and that smelling of fear and how it really brought up for me the sort of how pedophiles choose their victims um, okay. and choose who to groom. Cause that's quite a, a thing where, where a lot of, you know, perpetrators, pedophiles, things like that um, have certain signs that they're looking for in, in young people so that they know that they will be sort of the right victim to groom so that they can do certain atrocities to them. And I felt that in this, this sort of through line of like smelling fear and only certain people have the smell and only certain people that, that sort of picking, uh-huh. Um, it really felt like this choosing the person to groom, choosing the person to assault. Like it felt like a weird sort of homage to that, which mm-hmm. made me feel quite uncomfortable. And 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 I would have thought was an interesting concept to explore if I didn't know that he himself was a perpetrator of that. So what? Just to be clear, yeah. What are the signs that you know abusers are sometimes looking for in victims? Yeah. Like. Uh, you know things like bad homes isolated all those things that make you sort of um more vulnerable essentially um you know looking for adult validation those kind of stuff you know not a safe not a safe social group to talk to that kind of thing Mm -hmm. all all the things that are quite sad to, (laughs) to think about uh really you know when they've talked to perpetrators they they've said yeah you're looking for that in in you know what you're doing when you when you see that it's quite that's the that's you know that that person's like going to be easier to groom versus others yeah definitely um i found it a, another moment in the film to be kind of sexualized in an interesting way mm-hmm. uh, but not necessarily in like a pedophilia way at all but do you remember the moment where <laughs> the creeper sort of severs the head of i think a, a like a male an attractive male cop mm-hmm. and he picks it up and he looks like he's making out with the severed head. Yes. But really he's like pulling out the tongue. Mm-hmm. Do you think that was like a moment of campy sort of sexuality or do you think it was just supposed to be straight on horror? So I thought it was sexual and, and I thought of it like I think of Freddie um, who, you know, I think of Freddie in the, in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies being sort of sexual as well. And I think mm-hmm. he is sort of attracted to his victims as well. And I, and I felt that with the creeper. Like I did feel like it was sort of, it was sexual for him. The eating was sexual for him. The fact that he's eating the tongue felt quite deliberate. You know what I mean? And, and I, I think there was camp in it for sure. Um, and that's why it plays well. But I think it was supposed to be sexual for sure. It's so strange watching this film in the year 2022 because while there are some pretty glaring smoke signals, like what we've already discussed, it's a pretty well-made, effective, and fun horror movie. Would you agree? So agree. And again, like I said, I begrudgingly really liked it. Like I, I didn't. I went in not wanting to like it because I knew all this yeah. stuff. And and as I was watching it and seeing all these moments that were so clear to me, or I don't know if I'm, you know, maybe I'm reading in too much. I could totally believe that as well. I was like, oh, and getting the ick and getting frustrated and getting angry. But I was also like, I was scared and I was on the edge of my seat and I was totally entertained. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we weren't alone. Um, from Slate, critic David Edelstein compared Salva to Spielberg in his review for the film. 
So here's what he had to say. Salva has some of the young Spielberg's graphic ingenuity, and he's aiming for a more fairy tale, dreamlike, irrational dread, a child's dread, not of psychos and hockey masks, but of winged demons who hide in the shadow at the other end of the drainage pipes, waiting for no discernible reason to carry you off and do despicable things to you in a clammy cellar. I don't know if Edelstein sort of knew the context I... of Salva when he wrote it, but it's quite an interesting take. I was literally going to say, did he know what he was saying there? Because to me, that sounds so, again, and again, is this us reading into it because we know what we know? Or mm-hmm. or were people hinting at it? Did, did people know? Um, and I, you know, mm-hmm. I would not be surprised if people did. Everyone absolutely knew mm-hmm. what was going on because we allow predators in Hollywood. And in life. I don't think everyone knew. I think, um, I think some people did. And I think over the course of the last... 30 years uh people have become more and more aware but it's hard to know in 2003 when not everybody was living on twitter what people knew and what people didn't know and also what they cared about and what they gave value to um before we continue on into other films jules i'm wondering if you have any other notes on this first film yeah and you know some of the things i noticed in it that were kind of nice were around i think the sis there was signs in this movie that the sister was in an abusive relationship uh-huh. um with her partner that she didn't really want to talk about that she was sort of running from um in some ways in this movie and i actually found that that really interesting and even just like you know the brother being like what's going on why don't you want to talk about him and sort of that that sort of shutting down and then when they first see the license plate and it says be eating you but they said beating you and she flinches because she's clear, you know, she's being beaten by this man. And then he goes, they're the license plate. And she like, you know, you know what I mean? She kind of looks back down and you can tell. So there are these like really, I thought, interesting moments of, you know, other abuse that's going on and, and, and like siblings trying to be supportive of each other. And there, those were things I really liked in this movie from a social work perspective. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in our first episode, we get into some pretty... We get into the details of Salva's own upbringing, where there was a lot of physical abuse. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, you know, I don't know if that was the context for him wanting to include stuff like that in the film. But yeah. he definitely is a filmmaker that comes from that experience, a lived experience. It definitely felt like that. It definitely felt like he he really understood the nuances. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I, and listen, trauma begets trauma. So I totally appreciate and i did listen to your first episode that it sounds like he had a very horrific traumatic past and Mm -hmm. and some of the symptoms of that can be inflicting trauma on others that doesn't excuse what he's done it just is you know is what it is yeah it's always a complicated thing to talk about because of course it doesn't excuse the crime but it does contextualize it (coughs) excuse me it does contextualize it to some degree i'm wondering if you could maybe if we could ask you a little bit about that because I think it's something that, you know, we, people not in the social work or in the mental health fields, sort of know about in passing that um, people who are abused are more likely to turn out to be abusers. Is that true? Or is that a myth? It, no, it is true. Uh, yeah, it, it is true. It, it is a common thing that can happen. And, and, and I mean, usually when people are showing, what can even happen is if young children are showing sort of like, sort of predatory behavior or, or over-sexualized behavior when they're young, that's a big warning sign that they may be being sexually molested or abused. 
um, because that's how people kind of, that's how we, as a trauma response, sort of play out what's going on for us. And, and, you know, our brains are really incredible things. The way that we keep ourselves sort of safe or the way that we survive um, the things that we've gone through is pretty incredible. So a lot of things can be things like sexualizing our trauma. So, you know, reframing our trauma in a sexual way, reframing our sexual trauma in a, in a way of like, there was desire there, there was enjoyment there. Um, and that can then lead to, you know, when you see people that were the age that you were sexualizing them as well. Now that doesn't go for all people that were, were molested. Please, please don't think that I am saying that at all, but that can be something that comes up for folks and that can be why they then, um, become perpetrators themselves. Very interesting. Jules, before we move on to the second film, what are your other thoughts about the first Jeepers Creepers? I, I really liked it. I thought it was a four out of five. And I, <laughs> you know, I, I it's it's funny. I, I thought it was really, it was really nuanced, sorry, is what I will say. Uh, and it was scary. And I, you know, it's hard. I do get scared still, but these kind of movies don't necessarily scare me. I, I was pretty scared by this. Um, mm-hmm. But that's pretty much all I have to say about the first one. So Jeepers Creepers 2 came out in 2003, about two years after the first film, and was also written and directed by Victor Salva. A direct sequel to the first film, it includes a demonic creature uh, who stalks a yellow school bus that generally has a football team on it. These are mostly a cast of young, attractive men in various degrees of dress. Francis Ford Coppola did return as an executive producer as he was on the first film. This time we see Ray Weiss as a lead role. His name was Jack. And this is a man who's trying to avenge the presumed death of his young child, who in the opening sequence of this film is carried off by the creeper. It was released in theaters on August 29th, 2003, had mostly negative reviews from critics, but it was a big hit. It uh, only took $17 million to make and grossed um, between 63 and $120 million worldwide. I know that's a very different number, but there are sort of different records on hand. So we're not exactly sure how much this film earned, but there's a chance that it earned upward of $120 million dollars yeah um robert ebert wrote in his review of the second film victor salva's jeepers creepers 2 supplies us with first class creature a forthright story and dialogue possibly created by feeding the screenplay into a pasta maker would you would you say that there's truth to that do you I agree with mr ebert that. <laughs> it's I mean... kind of rude it's rude. I, 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 I mean, there was issues with the dialogue. There was issues <laughs> with the script for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I think there's truth to that. I don't always love Roger Ebert. And I know he's not always a horror fan, but um, there <laughs> were there were some. Yeah, Pastamik is pretty. Wow, I don't know if I'd go that far, but I, I kind <laughs> of hear where he's coming from. <laughs> yeah. So this film, I'm going to try to put it in my own words. So. I forget the the exact timeline. I think it's either before or after the events of the first film, just by a day or so. And the creeper is still feeding. And there's this uh, school bus, like an old rickety school bus, chock full of young 
football players and they're like chanting they're very like raucous toxic masculine chant something about cocks and yeah yeah, which was a which was a chant written by mr salva himself because at the very end credits it's actually listed as him which is a little creepy because the word cock is in it a lot um but there are other people on this bus so there's the bus driver there's the coach and there's a couple of cheerleaders who are there to support the football players at their big game there is some bizarre like racial tension on the bus between uh, the the white members of the team and the black members of the team. And we were talking about how it's very strange. Like sometimes it just feels like the film is dabbling in racist territory. And other well, times it feels like it's commenting on race issues, but it's not clear to me. It's like, it's literally holding the line between like white saviorism and being racist, which is, mm-hmm. it's uncomfortable all around and wrong all around. Like this, sh- it, it was really weird. It's very strange. There's also a psychic cheerleader who's my favorite character in the film named Minxie, I think, who while on the bus has this flash of a young man, Justin Long from the first film, warning her that they're in danger and that the creeper is after them. Turns out she's right. And the creeper uses throwing stars. Yeah, one of his throwing yeah. stars and blows out the tires of the bus. As the night gets darker, uh, the creature shows up, the creeper shows up and picks them off one by one. And a lot of the film takes place in this one uh, location on the bus as tensions rise between the survivors. Um, and there, would you say that's an accurate description? Yeah, the only thing I would say is that she actually has the vision after they've already been, ah. one or two people have been killed. That's right. I think there was a couple of visions that she has. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, you're right. There is a couple. The, the major one that I'm thinking of. You're right. Mm-hmm, she just you're... sees people going, go yeah, out. the right. major one is after people. I know because I wrote in my notes, in both these films, there there's not a lot of believing women <laughs> that's a pretty uh-huh. it's a pretty through line that people don't believe women in these films you know in the first one not listen to they you know justin yeah. long doesn't allow his sister to listen to her gut does and like oh, they're going to the stores and they're saying no no it didn't happen and then in this one too after people have literally died they've man flying over them because this young woman says you know he's gonna pick us off is what i was told and they're like you're crazy i'm like uh i think she's right we've just listen she's a psychic cheerleader named minxie i would i would have questions i would marry her it sounded that's great (laughs) (laughs) yeah we were talking about how there's some bizarre like racial tensions in the film but i would also say that there's some bizarre use of homophobia and i'm also unsure if these moments of homophobia are the film being homophobic or the film commenting on toxic masculinity and homophobia. Now, we know that Salva himself is a queer creator, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't pure moments of homophobic nature in the film. How do you feel sure. about that? Yeah, I, I was constantly curious if this movie was just the epitome of toxic masculinity. And, and this is the time that toxic masculinity was at an all-time high in the world. I mean, I guess it's always at an all-time high, but... Um, I feel like it was really loved, beloved almost, um, or if it was commenting on it because it was so overt and so bizarre, the, the, the amount of toxic masculinity, the grossness, the misogyny, the, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, I, I, I was curious, knowing it was a queer man that made this, I was like, is he saying something or is he, is this also a bit of a fetish, fetishization of this sort of like, 
you know, you know, putting masculine men up on a pedestal, pedestal, which does happen. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely like a lot of the male physique sort of on display. We're seeing a lot of interest in the naked male form. There's a lot of like dudes sort of walking around without their shirts on. And yeah, it felt I, I wrote, I wrote so many times. This feels like erotic. This feels like softcore porn. Like there were so many moments of that that I, I, I kept feeling like something was going to happen, that there was going to be kissing. I mean, this movie would have been a little more interesting, but uh, <laughs> no, actually I liked it. But, um, you know, it did feel strangely sexual. But I will say, and I, and I wonder if this is also why um, the audience liked it. It was really interesting for the, the really intense male gaze not to be on women. Yeah. And, and I, I'm not used to that. You know, it was sort of, mm-hmm. it was. And it not was a commentary either. Because no, usually just... when the male gaze is reversed or extracted, it's yes. a commentary on it. But this time I didn't feel that way. No, and it still felt sexual and objectifying and all those horrible things that the male gaze has. But it just wasn't directed towards women, which it, it just sort of felt, yeah, liberating, freeing. Maybe that's wrong to feel, but it did feel that way. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just interesting to watch this still kind of weirdly sexual wisest you know gratuitously sexual movie but mm-hmm. it's not about women we're not seeing like you know full frontal of girls it's all men yeah yeah it's interesting you say that as sort of a woman watching and from your pov as a woman because whenever the male gaze is directed to dudes there's a little part of me that feels a little bit uncomfortable because i'm not used to it yeah. it's not what i'm sort of spoon-fed in the same way as it is when women are in the gaze for sure and i also wonder if that's why things also were able to slide by right because like we don't people maybe feel a little uneasy but don't want to sort of call it to the table in that way yeah um we've talked about patrick goldstein a writer from the la times in his article victor salva's horror stories he has this to say one sticking point to the debate over salva involves his work as a horror director Most of his films are populated with young men who are terrorized by killers, convicts, and scary monsters. But his detractors find a darker parallel between Salva's crime and his films. At the time of Powder's release, a police officer in charge of the Los Angeles Police Department's unit for sexually exploited children was disturbed that Salva was allowed to be in a position of authority on a movie set, saying, as long as he's in a position to be around kids, he's a threat to kids. After seeing Jeepers Creepers in 2003, New York Daily News film critic Jamie Bernard told the San Jose Mercury News, it's a naked exploitation of Salva's own inner disturbances. He's just rubbing our noses in the very crime he committed. For Salva, his preoccupation with young men in fearful situations comes from a very different place. All these films about young men in scary situations are a mirror on my own childhood, he says. When you're a filmmaker, you make movies about what you know. Um... I'm going to try to have us wrap up our thoughts on the second Mm. film. So we were thinking that, you know, there's a little bit more like obvious eroticism around the male form in this one than the second, in this one rather than the first one. Would you agree? Or overtly sexual. Absolutely. I would agree. Even, you know, him licking the the, the creeper, licking the window and winking and all that stuff. It feels much more overt than it was in the in the first one how did the film sort of stack up against the first one um 
I, I saw them sort of, I saw, watched one one day and the other one the next day. And I, and I wish I had a little more time in between because the first one was, I found so good that this one kind of did not stack up that well. That being said, I found this one quite fun. Um, mm-hmm. And it gave me a lot of, you know, this, this boogeyman that we were talking about this, you know, this archetype. I, I, I do like the idea of like fear being more making you more vulnerable or, or being a bad thing, you know, thinking about movies like dead silence, which I know is one of your favorites screaming yep. is how she can kill you. And, <laughs> you know, being the boogeyman, which was a horrible movie, but um, that actual movie, how he, how he killed him was by facing him. Right. And I like, mm-hmm. I sort of liked that being, that was in here too that like if you didn't have fear and if you were more confident then he wouldn't want to take you away and i thought that was oh. kind of I, I found that kind of fun um, was that proven in this like were there people yeah. that were more confident and they weren't picked yes there was someone who was scared the guy with the glasses was really scared at first and then he was less scared and then the creeper didn't end up taking him because he didn't want him anymore oh and wow i, I never clocked a- that that's so creepy what i thought listen if i'm wrong that's what i clocked but anyway so i thought that was sort of an interesting fun piece um and i've liked that in other movies too so i sort of like that so i I found this movie fun and campy again predatory um Mm -hmm. stuff aside uh but it wasn't like the first one which i thought was scary and nuanced yeah yes i agree although uh as a fan, I think maybe I even prefer the second film just because of the tone shift. But there's no doubt that the first one is higher quality. I, I also felt like the women in this one were, were like really useless, whereas the women in the first one, you know, the sister was, you know, like was was a part of it, was an active part of it. Whereas mm-hmm. this one, like, yes, that woman had a vision, but th- they were just sort of there to be hot. It felt like yeah. the studio was like, you need to put some women in this. <laughs> And yeah. so he was like, ah, oh, fine, here's three. You know, that's what it felt like. Something we haven't talked about was the violence perpetrated against a young child in the opening scene. How did you feel about that opening sequence? So if I didn't know what I know, I would have just sort of let it happen and been like, oh, it's scary because he's killing a kid, which is always that sort of scary thing. You kind of that rule that you think they're not going to break in horror movies. Mm. Um, but knowing what I know, it felt incredibly uncomfortable. It felt, I mean, the age of the kid was kind of, well, you before, know. In case people don't remember, what was the setup? What was the opening sequence like? Yeah. So basically they're on a farm and he has to go fix all the his his dad thinks he broke his auger which was like a thing or his, or his hole puncher or something i forget what it was and and the, the little boy has to go into the field alone and he's kind of scared of the um, scarecrows scarecrows exactly and then one of them of course smells that he's scared and it's the creeper and he takes him away and it, yeah. it also felt very like boy alone you know fighting with his parent his father like it felt it, it just felt super predatory. And and do you think that like, it's only because we know the context of the creator or do you think that there's a, you know, an okay chance that there is a little bit of connection, connective tissue between the issue and that, fe- and that scene? I think there's definitely connective tissue. Even, you know, when you read that quote, hearing Salva say, I write what I know and I write my life. Like I definitely felt that a lot in these movies. And I, and, and, and I think that's what made them powerful is that there was this truth in it and this honesty in it and, and, but not a nice honesty, but I think absolutely seeing this boy alone fighting with his family, you know, fierce, you know, looking around and, and, 
kind of getting picked off. It felt so right, right on, right on the money. Yeah. Before we move on to the third film, I was wondering, did you have any other notes or, or observations about the second film in the series? Not really, except for that it was it was like more, more overtly sexual, like we talked about. It was interesting. I didn't love the sort of vengeance storyline of the dad trying to find his like, you know, young son's killer. But mm-hmm. and I, I thought the ending was real bad of like, you can see him for five dollars. <laughs> I was like, this is not <laughs> Something for me. you said that I found interesting was, yeah, Hollywood kind of has this unspoken rule and horror that you're not going to kill kids. And sometimes they do. Why do you think we have that rule? Why do you think we have that unsung? Yeah, I, I just think, yeah, you know, women and children are off limits, but women aren't. But there's something about killing a kid that feels so scary and feels so um, cruel, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think maybe it's from the old code times or something, but like that just didn't happen. We never did it and and it wasn't. And then, you know, that that, that dam has been broken and we definitely kill kids now, but it, it did feel for a very long time like kids didn't die in movies and, and they would always live. And which was good because it, like, the movie wasn't mean enough or something to kill a kid, but it does something so vulnerable about children um, mm-hmm. that feels so scary when a predator takes them out. Yeah, definitely. Which is a big chunk of why it's so upsetting that Salva really didn't pay much time in prison, that there wasn't a whole lot of accountability paid for such a gruesome act. If it's okay with you, Jules, maybe we can jump a little bit into the third film and the final one directed and written by Salva. Mm -hmm. So a long while after the release of the second film, which happened in 2003, finally we saw a third film. So in 2017, Jeepers Creepers 3 was finally unleashed, also written and directed by Victor Salva. And it takes place in between the events of Jeepers Creepers and Jeepers Creepers 2. One of the returning actors was Jonathan Breck as the Creeper, but we also get to see a cameo from Gina Phillips, who plays uh, the sister in the first film. And she returns at the end as Trish and sort of uh, declares war on the creeper and she's going to get her revenge in 23 years. Um, <laughs> yeah. In between that happening in uh, the opening, not it's a very confusing film in my opinion. Uh, we have a totally new cast of characters. Um, two young people, Addison and Buddy, I believe, are sort of part of the focus. We also have an older woman in the film played, I believe her name was Galen. Um, who's one of the more interesting facets of the film. And she has visions of her dead son, Kenny, who was killed by the creeper. And uh, at some point she gets her hands on a severed limb that belonged to the creature. And she gets a vision of what he's up to. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) The movie was a hard watch. It was not good. It's pretty rough. Mm-hmm. It's pretty bad. Uh, and you can just tell that it's made with a whole lot less mm-hmm. than the first two films are made with. And it was also made like a long time after. And so maybe that lightning in a bottle was officially gone. In 2006, the film was initially announced and we were told that Jeepers Creepers 3, The Creeper Walks Among Us, was going to be coming directly to DVD. But something happened, and there wasn't any financing, and this fell through. For many years, 
the development continued to sort of stir and Salva produced a script called Jeepers Creepers 3 Cathedral. And I believe the intent behind that was to see Trish return. And this would sort of be Trish's story. However, nine years passed, lots of hope sort of up and down and the film sort of never came to be. And that whole script got scrapped. It wasn't until 2016 or 2015 when production actually began and they went in a totally new direction. It took this time around, they filmed in Vancouver, Canada. And for the first time, I think in the history of the series, there was some pretty like striking repercussions for Salva's crimes. And so before the filming could begin, Canadian talent agencies uh, set out like this official alert to all the casting agencies with um, information about Salva's past. And because of this alert, um, production was actually halted for a moment. But yes, it did start up again. Uh, Jeepers Creepers 3 also caused a shitstorm online due to a specific line used in the film and the context of the child molestation perpetrated by Salva. So in the film, there's a line that a character speaks saying uh, sort of about a character sexualizing an underage girl. He says, can you blame him? I mean, look at her. The heart wants what it wants. Am I right? And so this is um, in reference to sexual abuse perpetrated towards a kid. And uh, so this line was definitely single was this line was definitely pinpointed by critics of the film, connecting it to sort of the sexual abuse that he committed in the 80s. Did you clock this line when you watched it? I, I didn't actually clock that line. That's very interesting. I, I, I had a hard time concentrating on this movie. Yeah. Um, to be Me fair, too. like I, I was not in it the way I was in the other one. So I, I apologize for maybe missing that. Um, I, I was confused. There wasn't a lot of like story arc, you know, um, mm-hmm. but hearing that, I mean, that's really unsettling. Yeah, very strange, and it's not the only time. Yeah, very strange stuff to I'm have in your so film. Surprised nobody, no editor went. Eh, let's take it out. You know that they just. Well, it was ultimately it. removed from the theatrical release, but versions, I mean, sent to critics, it was there, so people saw it. Wow. So I don't know if it's on the streaming versions that are available now, but it's possible. Um. Over. So yeah. Overall feelings was that this film was definitely not of the same caliber of the first two. That it was definitely lower budget. And that sort of was ineffective, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It, it lacked, like, the storyline or something. Like, it, it felt like there were too many characters and, and none of them were fleshed out. Whereas I feel like, I mean, and not in a, you know, at least in the second one when they were kind of, you know, two-dimensional, it was sort of campy and fun. It didn't feel that way in this one. No. Although the one thing that did carry through was a prolonged scene of underage boys urinating. Yes. Um, so bizarre very bizarre there's a scene bright day just like in the second film and in the first film it all happens in the bright daytime where uh, like i believe an underage teen urinates i think on, on the, the property track. of the creature yeah on the on truck, the truck which... the creature, yeah you see the stream of the pee oh we see like it so... yeah bizarre and just like makes me wonder if there's fetish at play 
I think there has to be. There's no other, like, again, there's no reason for this in the storyline. There's no, this doesn't bring up anything. You don't even, there's no, there's no sort of, it, it, just, it just feels, no need, thank you for the word. It just feels so gratuitous and, and overtly sexual and, I could be reaching, but another moment that struck me as kind of strange is when the other teenagers are murdered by the creeper and they are sort of both penetrated into a tree, which is a trope I see in horror quite regularly or a motif I see of like the double penetration death. And it always just makes me think of what you would imagine it makes me think of. Yeah. And and a lot of the times, I guess, when I think of the double penetration sex, it is in regards to people having sex and the killer yeah. kind of killing them mid sex. Okay, and, yeah, that's true. And but but I think that was deliberate for this too, like the two boys getting doubly killed. Like I wonder if that was supposed to be also a bit of a wink to sort of sex or sexiness or whatever. I, I'm not sure, but it's like hard not to think about that in horror yeah. films. Totally. Um do you do you have any thoughts, any closing thoughts on this strange low budget third film in this franchise? You know, I, I, I wish I had more to say on it. Other, it just it just really felt disjointed to me. It didn't feel as uh, nuanced or interesting. Um, but also, but it, it did feel like, um, I mean, it was so Canadian. <laughs> me and Josh yeah. live in Canada, and we kept, we talked about this multiple times, how Canadian it was and how, how many places I was like, oh my God, that's so Canadian. But um, <laughs> I'm glad to know he had less behind him. I'm glad to know he didn't have the same money and the same backing. And, yeah. you know, that, that acting studios or different studios were, were saying don't. Um, and you felt that in this movie, that there was definitely less behind him. Less support. Less support. And I'm glad because, yeah. So well, that leads me to my next question, which is never mind like necessarily the context of Salva, but if someone commits a terrible sexual crime and let's say they're convicted and, and do serve a prison sentence, should they never be able to to work in their chosen field again if let's say it's film? Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, this question is so there's no black and white it's so gray you know mm-hmm. um I, I i you know it's easy to say absolutely they should never be able to work again you know um mm-hmm. but unfortunately I, I do believe in you know um learning from your mistakes and growing and rehabilitation and so i want to believe that there is a world in which somebody can um, atone or you know learn from their mistakes and kind of give back but there has to be proof of growth there has to be you know real atonement there has to be real changes made publicly uh, for somebody to then be uh, I think kind of accepted back into a community especially like film television music these sort of industries that are so highly paid and also create role models right that's the real fear um sort of allowing these people yeah so i think that's what's so tricky about this um you know separating the art from the artist isn't as easy as i think sometimes we want it to be well the victim nathan forrest winters has gone on record saying that he's only picketed the films by salva where children are involved when children are not involved, let's say Jeepers Creepers, the first film, he 
uh, doesn't sort of, he doesn't want to stop him from creating films. It's only when a child is put in a situation that he cares. He doesn't believe that he should stop making films. And I do think that's an interesting perspective, but you're right. It's not black and white. Every situation is totally unique and it's just a really complicated issue. Yeah. And, and I think like we need to listen to, to Nathan and the victim, like we need to listen to him with what he's saying as well. Like his voice is more important than ours in this. So I mm-hmm. totally appreciate what he's saying. My only issue is, is this movie does feel like it's insinuating, um, sexualizing and younger folks. Um, yeah. It doesn't feel fully adult. It doesn't feel fully, though every, every actor in this is, I'm sure 18 or over, it still feels Probably. like, um, Yeah. Uh, in all of the films um justin long definitely has an air of young boy yeah in the first film how he's stylized especially um the second film has a slew of underage characters that are sexualized and sort of at least you know the male gaze is firmly placed on them Mm -hmm. and then even this film there's some bizarre use of teenage boys and even strange dialogue about what the heart wants, what it wants kind of a thing. Yeah, I think the young boy, that I guess the lead boy in this, I think is supposed to also be like, you know, 15, 16. Um, yeah. You know, and he's that, quite Yeah, the brother character, yes, quite, I think so. Yeah, like he, he looked, you know, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, uh, that's my, and again, so that these are the things that to me really stand out when when we're when we when we do look at this really you know layered question of separating the art from the artist or can an artist with a tone or can an artist kind of come back is like if they're making things like this and they're showing to us um that they haven't changed and if anything they're sort of proud of or maybe that's the wrong word um then no that's not okay uh absolutely no this is not um and that's of course our read on it but i think it's a fair take to have yeah like yeah Hmm. Anyways. Jules, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about these films. I know it's not necessarily your favorite genre to explore, but I think you have a really yeah, a really important perspective that I'm glad that we got to that we got to utilize. I I so appreciate you having me and I so appreciate you doing this series because I think it's important that folks know the history and not just um sort of sweep it under the rug like it has been. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And for everyone listening at home, we are going to continue Dreepers Creepers on scene in two weeks with our third episode. Until then, you may see a couple of things show up in the feed unrelated. Thank you for listening to another episode of Dreepers Creepers Unseen. Thank you so much for listening to Development Hell. If you enjoy this podcast, then please do us a major favor of leaving us five stars and writing a positive review. It really makes all the difference in the world. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of Development Hell. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.